Hi everyone, welcome to this month's installment of Beer with BMSIS. I'm Jacob Huckmisra and uh, thanks for joining us. This is the podcast series that features the research, ideas, and philosophies of the members and friends of Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out online at www.bmsis.org, and you can listen to previous episodes of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. So this month, we are... Um, we have uh, Abel Mendez from the University of Puerto Rico joining us to talk about habitability and ways that we could actually quantify habitability, um, or at least ideas of how we might do that. Uh, first, however, we have Dr. Craig Hardgrove, who's going to introduce us to one of his favorite beverages. Uh, in keeping with the tradition of our show, we ask that you only imbibe alcoholic beverages if you are of age in your country of residence. So, Craig, please. All right, well, it's, it's 11 a.m. here, so I, I couldn't quite bring myself to drink any uh, alcoholic beverages. So I, I brought my uh, my favorite tea. It's uh, Market Spice Earl Grey. They sell it in loose leaf or bag form. Um, this is actually in the heart of uh, Pike's Place Market um, in Seattle. So uh, definitely check it out if you're up there. They're, they're right next to the guys that throw fish, uh, so it's easy to find. Just go to the left where they're throwing the fish. But uh, I can read their description. It's one of the best Earl Grey teas I've ever had. Um, it's, they say they, they double the bergamot flavor with black Chinese Hunan tea to create a blend that is bold yet floral. So I don't know what that means, but I like it. So uh, try it out if you like tea. Um, all right, so our, uh, our speaker today is uh, Professor Abel Mendez. Abel is a planetary scientist and astrobiologist at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. And he studies the potential for life uh, on other planets. And uh, he is the director of the Planetary Habitability Laboratory, which is a virtual scientific and education lab dedicated to studying the habitability of the solar system and beyond. Um, he's worked at Fermilab and NASA Goddard as part of his graduate studies on theoretical physics and biophysics at the University of Puerto Rico. He worked with Chris McKay on habitability sensors at NASA Ames. And Professor Mendez is best known for creating the Earth Similarity Index and maintaining the Habitable Exoplanets Catalog, which I highly recommend you check out. They're, they're pretty cool. Um, you go to phl.upr.edu and you can find the links there. Um, these are databases for potentially habitable worlds. Um, and his research has been highlighted in uh, international publications like National Geographic, Scientific American, and Discover. So... Uh, his talk today is on habitability metrics for astrobiology, quantifying the unquantifiable. Now I'll turn it over to Professor Mendez. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so I want to drive your attention to the picture. So not everywhere on Earth is equally habitable. So you see the picture, the background from right to left. From desert rainforest, there is an obvious habitability gradient, from worst to best for life. 
So you are using the presence of life as a proxy for habitability to recognize this pattern. Assuming, and that is assuming that a place with more light is probably more habitable than others. That distribution helps to explore what environmental factors match those conditions with abundant life. So for the next time in a new environment, you don't even need to see the life, but use the information from the environment to predict how much life of the same type uh, could be uh, potentially maintain. So a habitable environment is just an environment that might support some form of life, not necessarily present. Um, Earth today is not that good for life. We consider it's a dry and cold desert compared to a rainforest. We have too much deserts. Uh, Mars, you can say that is a desert planet. But Earth is more like in the middle range. It's more likely a dry forest on average, considering the dry and forest areas. So imagine a rainforest planet where most of its land areas support abundant life. So today, I will be talking about habitability metrics. This is an emerging field within astrobiology, or more correctly, the emerging field since the basis for it were established more than three decades ago. When I started working in the astrobiology field about 15 years ago, one of the most frequent questions was how to measure habitability. You know the issue. Still today, that is a common question from both young and senior scientists. Some people even take that concept as difficult to define as life. But interestingly, the true thing is that biologists already tackled this problem successfully during the 70s and the 80s, but it's still seldom known by the astrobiology community. And there are various reasons for this. First, habitability metrics originated within the field of ecology and population dynamics. And this is a very highly mathematical field, mostly dominated by the uh, uh, mathematicians. And uh, it was uh, creating this field to understand the distribution of wild animals and plants. So this seemed to have no relation with astrobiology since it focused more on microbial life. So that's one, that's the first issue. Second, this is a very specialized field within theoretical ecology and even not taught or used by all ecologists. Third, it's called differently. We use the generic word habitability, but it's formally called habitat suitability by biologists. That habitability word is not used in, the, in the, their papers. So as an astrobiologist, if you try to look for reference on how to measure habitability, habitability metrics, you would probably miss the habitat suitability concept or seeing irrelevant, seeing it focus more on animal and plant life, and that's, that's not what you're looking for. The definition and core mathematical uh, framework of habitat suitability model is something that can be extended to all forms of life, including microbial life. 
That is precisely one of the reasons we established the Planetary Habitability Laboratory in 2010 to adapt and apply this framework to the astrobiology field. As we call it, habitability metrics for astrobiology. Um, our first widely used application was the Earth Similarity Index that you might already heard. It's a measure of Earth lightness for planets based on a given set of planetary parameters. Interesting, this index was inspired by the diversity and similarity index used in ecology to compare populations. So now the population is different. It's not uh, life, it's just planets. But so that was the, the, the inspiration for the index. Also, uh, uh, we learned after that, the, the similarity index are used in many other applications, so a pattern recognition. So when you see an application that recognizes faces, you use similarity index to evaluate different characteristics and compare them into one number and to, to see with some, some degree of correlation that these two things are similar. Still, this approach of the, of like the earth similarity index is an indirect measure of habitability. But I have to explain how this works. And I want to drive the attention to the, uh, uh, middle lower figure that looks uh, like a formula. So habitability or habitat suitability is defined as the suitability of an environment for life. That's the shortest, a straightforward definition. Suitability of an environment for life. So this definition has three components shown there vertically. An environment, a life, and a suitability. All three need to be defined for a proper assessment of habitability. The environmental component is a description of the physical, chemical, or even biological location for life. That's the habitat. So there's goals, your astronomy, your geology, uh, your planetary science. It goes in the de definition of the, of the environment. You have to consider when you select your, your environment to define its spatial and temporal limits. For example, uh, you are considering the surface of Earth today, or just a particular region, or ocean, or subsurface, whatever. The life component requires the selection and knowledge of an individual species or community. So you can define these habitability uh, indices for just one species, or a aggregation of many species, which makes things more complicated, even a full biosphere how the biosphere uh, behaves. Uh, therefore, given some habitat, any habitability measure is always relative to the species or community under consideration. So this is a relative scale depending on what species or community you are considering. Finally, the suitability component is the tricky part because it defines the connection between the environment and life. This is what we usually call the proxy for habitability. So you have your environment, you have your life, and you need the suitability, the proxy for, for habitability that uh, you're using for define your habitability methods. So let me explain this with a little bit more details. 
that suitability or proxy for habitability could be direct or indirect. And direct suitability does not necessarily specify how exactly the environment component affects life. For example, you know the environments require liquid water, but you don't worry about the specific difference on the quantity or quality of this water for life. This is the case of current efforts searching for habitable exoplanets or water or moors or um, follow the water. For example, the occurrence of Earth-side planets in the habitable zone, which is also known as Eta Earth, is actually an indirect measure of sterile habitability. It's not called like that, but it's uh, you know, that's that's uh, how we can visualize that or how we can interpret that. The Earth similarity in is also an indirect measure. Because it's compared to Earth, assuming that Earth is, 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 is great. Um, but this is a, a, a but this is a planetary uh, habitability measure instead of stellar habitability. So an indirect measures of habitability rely on occurrence. This is known as present absent in biology. You just, uh, if you see the present of this environment, if you see the present of this life, that's, uh, that's how uh, you can define the, the habitability. But using astronomy, we just say occurrence of the fraction. So it relies on occurrence, a similarity like the similarity index, or a probability of some necessary conditions for life. It is recommended that these values be expressed as a fraction for consistency, where zero denotes non-habitable environment and one denotes a highly habitable environment. So that's why in the formula it says habitability equal the three boxes equal to some one number and that's a cartoon there or what that means. Still, you can have uh, negative numbers. Negative values could illustrate, for example, the magnitude of a damaging effect of a non-habitable environment. For example, the surface now of Mars and Venus are non-habitable. But I think everybody will agree that Venus is worse. So values, or also values over one can happen just to represent superhabitable conditions. So your one is a reference point. It could be the, the reference point based on Earth or some type of life. And you can have conditions that can go over that value. So the hardest part is to define a direct measure of habitability. And direct, that's most, that's, uh, what is m mostly used. But to define direct measure of habitability, that's the harder part. Because they require much more knowledge of the interaction of life and the environment. And there are many ways to do this. And what we did, it was extract from the methods that have been used by ecologists, what we can use in astrobiology, things that we can apply to different scales of life. So... Uh, there are many ways to do this, but there are some specific universal biological quantities that can be used as proxy for habitability. Such quantities are like the growth rate, properties that we can measure for any life, carrying capacity, 
that's about what the maximum amount of life, let's say biomass, that a environment can support. Metabolic uh, rate, that's related to the energy used by life. Or productivity, that's biomass produced by area by unit time. So any of those uh, biological quantities can be used as your proxy of habitability or even a combination of them. Therefore, to construct a direct measure of habitability requires knowing how the environment affects one of these biological quantities for some form of life, even uh, species or community. Note that we don't need to specifically estimate these quantities, but only how they are proportionally affected by the environment. So you don't need to actually calculate what is the productivity or the potential productivity of this environment, because you will always uh, normalize your quantities. Uh, for example, we know how temperature affects the productivity of primary producers, so such plant and phytoplanktons. And they are the driver of, of all life on the planet. Most require temperatures between 0 to 50 degrees Celsius, but do better at high, that means higher productivity, near 25 degrees Celsius. So you have to limit 0, 50, and 25 is the uh, optimum that, that makes you like a belt shape. So this is what we call thermal habitability function. It has some limit and has some optimum, and the optimum is at one. And uh, the the interesting thing is that many species, species, different species, share that. But if there are different species combining this in the environment with a different belt curve, you you can combine those all together if you don't want the habitability of the system or the habitability of individual species. Uh, these direct measures of habitability are also better represented as a fraction. So the idea here is that what we got from these ecology models, that is very advantageous just to represent those of these fractions with one meaning your standard reference. Another problem is how to combine the effect of many environmental variables into a single direct or indirect habitability measure. These are called aggregation methods in ecology. So you have a multi-parameter problem, and your big question is, hey, how I combine these multi-parameters? So they are called aggregation methods in ecology to do that, to suggest alternatives. There are many ways to do this. For example, if you are dealing with probabilities, that's simple, because uh, we know that they can be multiplied to each other. Um, Similarity in this are easy to construct too, because you are comparing hours to a reference value. But if you are uh, trying to do a more direct measure of habitability, I recommend uh, productivity as the habitability process. Since we know how to calculate for uh, microbial life to complex life, there are many ways to measure or estimate it in the field or in the lab, and there are even ways to measure it via remote sensors. In fact, the NASA Land and Ocean Primary, uh, um, sorry, 
de, de, de NASA Terrestrial Ecology Program use Terra and Aqua Satellites to monitor the global land and ocean primary productivity of air. This is a measure of global health. That's, uh, that's how, uh, sometimes how they call it. But they have been called as a measure of terrestrial habitability because uh, primary producers are the driver for larger species. So here you have one way to measure the uh, habitability of Earth through time. Uh, for most astrobiologists' application, we might need to only work with indirect measure of habitability. This is especially true for exoplanets. So we don't have enough you know, information about them to weigh how terrestrial life, again, life as we know it, will be affected by their environment. The most important thing is that habitability index, given the same scale and meaning, so that we say that no matter how you calculate it, what are you talking about? The index, the values can be compared. And if somebody calculates one of these indices and say, well, my habitability it was one, everybody will know what you mean and will ask question. So they are easy to compare. And in this scale, they are also to combine. So they provide an excellent way to predict and prioritize observation of those areas in the solar system and beyond with a higher probability to support life as we know it. So what I like from them in particular is uh, for target selection because you can uh, prioritize uh, from a large sample, let's say, of different environments or uh, a different population of planets. What are the most the candidates that match? It's like sorting but sorting for many, many parameters as needed. So I'm, I'm right now open to question. This is a very complicated field. I'm very abstract. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but I, I, I hope and I think there sh should be many questions. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Abel. Um, yes, we can open up the floor to questions. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there, and then I'll maybe chime in in a second. Hi, uh, Abel. That was, uh, that was really interesting. Thanks, thanks a lot for that. Um, hi, Mark. I, uh, I, I was hoping you could continue on for maybe just a bit on your, uh, on your, on your last point there, um, about using this as a, uh, as an opportunity to sort of discriminate against, uh, say, say multiple, uh, maybe habitable planets that, that, that one might use this as a discriminator. Can you, can you talk me through how sort of, you know, maybe in the, in the near term, uh, it's it's 30 or 40 years from now, we have uh, um, uh, a space telescope that uh, can uh, retrieve some basic, you know, say surface compositions uh, or atmospheric compositions of a, of a terrestrial planet, um, how this might be used uh, or, or as a way to decide which ones to, uh, to, to, to address for that metric. Okay, let's start uh, first near term, because near term, I use, for example, the Earth Similarity Index just to sort out candidates for planets. So that's good if you're looking for which one matches the conditions. Uh, uh, if you are uh, using the reference as Earth, which are those planets match the condition? They are sorted. They are sorted. So in practice, what we do is 
the, for the capital candidates, we sort them. And, uh, when we try just to explore, just to, to, to confirm one of those, you have to go through which one I start. So I start in the order of the earth similarity index. Just to, cause that's time consuming, just to get the data, just to analyze the, uh, the data. So in practice, it makes you the, uh, it schedule your, your, you organize your process. But uh, given that in the uh, far future we have more details about the planets, then these indices are, get, are getting more complicated because they, they will have more information. For example, it would be great just to uh, create, uh, use one of the indices that we use for uh, primary productivity applied to the planet. So the easiest thing that you can have on the planet is you have a global surface temperature of the planet and how much ocean area that tells you something about the humidity on the planet and life surface like that humidity. So from those two values, you have uh, ratio land ocean area and surface temperature, then you can prioritize which ones, according to life as we know it, let's say you, you, you use uh, the equations for, for primary productivity of plants. So that will tell you from those values which one should have more effect on the atmosphere because that, that also will affect the, the amount of uh, change in the atmosphere, I mean oxygen distribution if you have but also it would be very interesting that uh, if you find the right conditions for having a hard, a large productivity based on those values and you say well is that so it should have a lot of oxygen and you don't find oxygen that tells you something else that tells you not only maybe that the model is is, is not correct the data but there is so life as you don't know it in the process, or even that if, if you find oxygen and it doesn't match the terrestrial productivity, then it tells you this is something not like life on Earth. So that's that's one way to use them. If I can have a follow-up, and it's kind of the same question, but maybe it's in, it's in a different, slightly different way. I get what is you know beyond mass, radius, and distance from the star, and stellar spectrum, which are easily measurable by by uh, current astronomical techniques. What is the the measurement that you would most like to have um, that would then help uh, you answer your, your question of which of, say, a multitude of planets would be the, the one to, to point your, your big telescope at? Well, definitely for uh forgetting about biosignatures because that will be more direct but uh for the description of the bottom end just the one that i said the uh, average surface temperature and the uh, land ocean ratio that tells me a lot for us a starting point to make a more direct reference of what will be the productivity the expected productivity of that planet as compared to earth that will be, and that's thing that, those are things that are maybe not that far away. Of course, if we have a gradient from equator to north of the distribution of temperatures, that's, that now you have a lot of detail there, and your assessments will be much better. 
but just the average surface and the ocean to land ratio that will be nicely to compare what will be your prediction with uh direct measures because you'll have that you probably have a measure of the atmosphere and then uh what would be how does those compare to your biosignatures? Great, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's really interesting about just made me wonder if uh you've done much comparison with um climate model representations of some of these extrasolar planets. I know you can pretty much come up with any sort of climate you want from any of these planets, but is there any sort of uh, comparisons you can do and look at like what set of habitability metrics come out for a given climate model, and might that be a useful direction in the future as the models improve? I know some group is starting to do that using the Earth Similarity Index. Because uh, there are two versions in the similarity index. The original version includes the surface temperature, but they are using that in that case because they are doing modeling and they are doing creating uh, 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 solar systems and popping up different planets with different conditions. So in that case, they are using it to measure, just to quantify how good are their system are they getting. So as, as establishing as a point what condition made at the end things that we can measure and go from from uh top bottom. Now that you have those that are great, what are the conditions of that system? So so this that's a problem on uh on uh solar system evolution dynamics and what planets comes from different positions and different uh uh nebula concentrations. And uh, what atmosphere they might expect, and then what are the temperatures? So that's uh, that's one approach to use uh, the indices. So that now th- that way, so you're using the indices with a lot of details. Great, thanks. Anyone else have any questions for Abel? Well, I could say something else, and it's not related because we was discussing it in the at the beginning. Uh, there's a, or there's you know, an update today in our catalog of, of potentially habitable planets. We uh, we don't have any more these 5A1D and G was expected, but D that was something unexpected. It was published uh, just now on Science, and uh, it was an uh, artifact by the star that makes you think. The issue here is that many of these planets in the catalog could have that. But that's the bad news. But the good news is that um this um this procedure of identifying those uh, stellar activity could be used to improve the detection for smaller planets. And that's that's uh, that's the good thing. So we just lost two extrasolar planets. Uh, yes. For those of you who haven't followed extrasolar planet news much, Gliese 581G was kind of the statistical anomaly that was disputed. So that was expected to disappear. But we lost another real planet, supposedly. I guess it's not real anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's one issue that we have been discussing. It's confirmed. And we divide in confirm and... Uh, and not confirmed, but that confirmed is with quotations. And uh, it, ha- it could happen to anyone. 
So do you think that may affect other systems as well? Oh, yes, because uh, they, they are proposing a, they, an improvement of measure of the, of the sterile activity to recognize these issues. So it, I think it happened to GLIS, uh 51D, because it's an old one, and they had time just to revise it. But this is something that is, is just started mostly from 2010, and there are so many now. They will take some more time just to revise and to do new observation and to filter those and get, uh, and so we will get more, but, uh, some will die in the way. Ramses has a question he typed in. He said he's wondering what the usefulness of these metrics uh, depends, uh, how the usefulness depends on how well we can weigh them, or how do you weigh the indices correspondingly on the debate between Earth-like life and more exotic life? Oh, wow. So, no, they, right now, what we can do very good, they are weight reference to Earth. So you are considering an environment, and you know how life on Earth is affected by that environment. So you can determine uh, or sex more correctly what will be the habitability of that environment. However, adding, you can do something like that, just extrapolate and uh, create indices that are more open to different type of life, but that, that's a lot of speculation there. That's, that's, uh, that's possible. In fact, I was involved in a paper like that. I remember now. And, uh, and they, uh, in our paper, we consider the, um, uh, we create a metric just to assess a more open habitability, a, a more, uh, uh, for a more diverse life. And, um, I was not too happy with the, but, uh, with the definition, but, uh, that's one possibility. So it was an index for measure complexity, but the definition of complexity, that's, that's something, uh, op- more openly than terrestrial life, that's, that's, that's more complicated. I'm more open, and I don't like to get in those places too much. Now, Ramsey mentions that there's a recent challenges paper that dubbed Gliese 581c as the most likely habitable exoplanet, even though it has greater insulation than Venus. So, yeah, yes, and I agree with him. That was what that's one I I I expressed my concern, but I was not the the main author. <laughs> and uh, he said, "Well, it's uh." The idea was that because it was receiving more heat than the, by protection of the atmosphere, it just based the heat, not the availability of water, because that's totally outside of the habitable zone. That heat provides more energy for life. We're not necessarily considering that the planet necessarily will hold that water. So that's, that's a complicated issue, tricky issue there. So, but the heat, you can have heat and increase the reaction rates and brings more complexity. But for terrestrial life, we know the limits. So this is a more open limit. So 
Um, I have one more question, actually, along the lines of these more speculative topics. Uh, you mentioned that this could be, you could have a species-specific uh, habitability metric, and you know, we don't know what extraterrestrial life would be like, but what about a human-specific one? Could you have, say, like a, a terraforming uh habitability index or, or something that talks about the potential of planets in our solar system to be used for humans. Is, have you thought about that at all? I've been thinking about that because one property that shares uh, complex life and plants, animals, and humans is that they have si- very similar operational conditions. For example, most complex life as I said before, need temperature between zero and fifty, and 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 twenty five degrees is optimal for uh, for terrestrial uh, for uh, plants and animals for because of heat change. I would say also for humans, twenty five degrees sounds nice. I prefer twenty, but twenty five is, is is comfy. <laughs> but uh, so. When we define an index, we can constrain more the index. That's good to do. Op- open the index a more exotic life forms is, is, is more speculative, but you can also, but uh, for more specific uh, conditions like humans, and humans is, is less than this. 40 degrees is, is, is too bad now. Then uh, you can create those indices for uh, a complex life. And this seems to be a, a big issue Independently of the species, because uh, you you might say, okay, the 50 degree issues is because you have so much heat that the evaporation rate is so high that you will lose so much water. But in hydrothermal beds, you have uh, animals living there, and they and and it appears at first sight that uh, well they are so close to this uh, hot environment. But uh, when we do experiment with them in the lab, we find that they also have that limit about 50 degrees. And there's no problem with the evaporation rate of water there. They are full of water. So, so it seems like as uh, life on Earth operates as a fundamental limit. So I expect that con- those conditions to, be, to hold that and, and uh, for example, relative humidity also. There's also some issues there uh, for uh, complex life, and that includes in intelligent life. Thanks. That's actually quite interesting, and I think um, I think that shows a couple of potential uses for indices like this. Um, so unless there's any other questions, doesn't look like it. So, Abel, thanks once again for joining us. This was a great conversation. And uh, listeners, uh, stick around, uh, tune in again next month for uh, the next installment of Beer with BMSIS. Science, cases, private prejudice, with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.